0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to The Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell, one of your hosts here tonight at The Real Science Exchange, and we're excited to be back in the virtual pub with a one-of-a-kind uh, experts in methane emissions, I'm really looking forward to the conversation tonight about how we can mitigate emissions going forward. Tonight, we welcome two professionals to to discuss enteric methane emissions. Dr. Joe McFadden, you're no stranger to the Real Science Exchange. You actually appeared on episode number three, uh, believe it or not, Uh, and that was one uh, that's been a very popular episode. I looked at it earlier today, and there's been over 1,500 downloads, so very popular. And it's also hard to believe that we're already at number 65 and by the time this uh, drops uh, we'll be at 66. so joe since this is not your first time here you know the drill so what's in your glass tonight
1: oh i have a special treat for you okay i know that you have been doing this podcast you said 60 episodes or something i said i gotta i gotta bring the best drink (laughs) you've ever seen okay so i'm bringing it okay here it is and we'll just show it to you all right and what this is 50 50 blend of whiskey, and guess what? New York pure maple syrup that wow. Joe McFadden produced at my sugar bush, uh, my first season producing maple, and there it is. It tastes amazing. And to make this even better, okay, because I said that's that's not good enough. I got I to gotta step it up a notch. When I walked out the door this morning, there was a big icicle hanging from a maple tree, a sugar maple. <laughs> I ripped that off, and then I put that in the back of my truck, which is full of about a foot of snow, and that icicle is in the glass right now. So this is it
0: that is awesome that may be our best story so far joe yeah thank you for that you you know i've I've got a bit of a a story as well back on episode number three um we noticed while 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 we were um or at least i noticed that you kept draining your glass you'd empty it then you'd set it down and then a little bit later you'd drain it again we're like, what's going on? We found out afterwards that your wife was there uh, filling it up. So
1: Yeah, yeah. She was running. I live in my old house. She was running up and down the stairs and filling my glass for me because I would just keep drinking it. Uh, yeah, a Joe. little bit different. My wife's not here today, um, <laughs> but I am in a work environment uh, enjoying my beverage.
0: Well, that's good. Yeah, just don't let anybody know. <laughs> All right. Very well. So, Joe, uh, I, I see you've brought another guest with you tonight. Uh, would you mind uh, introducing Perry for us, real quick? And how'd you get to know her?
1: Yeah, this is uh, Dr. Perry Rosenstein from the Environmental Defense Fund. Uh, I've had the privilege of working with Perry now for about a year on, on, a, on a couple different projects. Um, I think it would be better just to let Perry describe sort of her background and uh, what she's currently doing um, with the Environmental Defense Fund. Uh, but And also, what is EDF? That would be helpful.
2: Sure. Great. Thanks, Joe, and it's a pleasure to be here. So... Um... I'm senior scientist of livestock systems at the Environmental Defense Fund. Um, The Environmental Defense Fund is an international organization that addresses the biggest environmental challenges. Um, And our philosophy is to build a vital earth for all, which we aim to do by finding solutions that address these environmental issues while supporting economic development. And we do this by combining science, economics, partnerships, and advocacy. And we're targeting the climate crisis um, through both mitigation and adaptation strategies, And this is certainly true for livestock. um, And that takes me to what we're talking about today. Um, So with livestock, our focus is on enteric methane emissions as well as manure management um, when it comes to methane. Although there are a lot of other ways that um, livestock may be connected to the climate. Um, And the strategies that we're looking at are are oftentimes different by region and production system. um, And we can get into some more of that today.
0: Oh, awesome. It's glad to have you here, Perry. Uh, so uh, the same as Joe's drill, what's, what's in your glass tonight?
2: Well, I have a uh, large beer mug here of some hard cider from New Jersey. Uh, oh, that's awesome. what i doing today.
0: Uh, Dr. Zimmerman, he's usually our co-host. He's gonna be very uh, uh, envious of that. And finally, I can't uh, forget to introduce my co-host tonight. We're bringing back Dr. Ken Sanderson once again from the Balchem team. Uh, Ken, thanks for joining us tonight and uh, you drinking anything special?
3: Well, Scott, I've resorted to my uh, usual podcast beverage, which is
0: uh, Molson Canadian. I wouldn't expect anything there less, Ken. And
1: I like that
3: maple leaf, Ken. Okay? That's <laughs> that really, that's good.
0: That's perfect. It's
3: perfect. We love Canada. It's in keeping with your it's in
0: keeping with your
3: theme, Joe. So
0: excellent. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. And tonight, uh, I, I've got a, an old standby. I've got a Woodfords, but I did pour a double. It's it's been that kind of week so far, guys. So. Anyway, in the spirit of the pub, let's raise a glass. Uh, cheers, okay. everyone. Cheers, everybody. Cheers.
1: cheers. I'm not going to have much left here in about 10 minutes. <laughs> <I'll keep going. laughs> we'll, we'll break and let you fill,
0: fill up again. So, okay. Uh...
4: Tonight's pubcast stories are brought to you by Reissure Precision Release Choline. Reassure is the most researched encapsulated choline on the market today, consistently delivering results to your transition cows of higher peak milk reduced metabolic disorders, and even in utero benefits to her calf leading to growth and health improvements. Visit Balchem.com to learn more.
0: So, Joe, um, you had a terrific webinar back in March uh, during the Real Science Lecture Series. Um, To date, we've had more than 600 people that have listened to the live recording or or, or the recording that we've put out on YouTube. Um, the, The title of that talk was Mitigating Enteric Methane Emissions, how can we speed up speed up progress Um, what do you think uh, made that webinar so popular with folks
1: well obviously it's a hot topic people are people who want solutions and they want them now um, i think but there's so many unanswered questions um and so you know what i really enjoyed about this process and for those that really know me uh, in my research program over the last decade now um you know i didn't start out as an enteric methane guy um, and when I came to Cornell, though, there was a lot of opportunity to, to grow the program, to, you know, explore other interests. And and um, I realized that, you know, this is a real unique chance for me to, to sort of study the field, um, not having sort of any prior sort of, sort of uh, not having any bias, you know, and just making sort of a, a broad sort of review of what works and what doesn't. And that would really position me well, I thought, to to think about how my research program is going to evolve here in the future. So that particular seminar was sort of the culmination of that effort, where I took time to talk to the experts in the field over the last um, few months. There's about 20, 20 plus um, scientists from across the world to gain their insight. And, um, and I, I really wanted to share that insight and share that experience that I had, and uh, not just to help sort of my own progression, but to, to help the scientific community as a whole sort of think about what we need to address uh, in the short term to, to get to a uh, meaningful impact.
0: All right. Very well, you know, kind of as an overview, right? Farting cows get a lot of clicks, uh, you know, on social media, but, but in reality um, how much uh, contribution does the food production system have in terms of generating greenhouse uh, gases? How does it compare to some of the other uh, generators?
1: Yeah, as a you know, as a, a percentage of total um, greenhouse gas emissions, um, particularly methane, um, is you know it is a, a major teric methane is a major contributor in terms of agricultural food production. Um, I don't think there's going to be much much debate there, especially from ruminants, um, beef and dairy cattle. But as a percentage of total, when you look at total greenhouse gas emissions on the basis of CO2 equivalents. You know, emissions from from livestock are, are, are quite low. Um, and this raises a lot of arguments about what what should we focus on? Should we should we really be focused on enteric methane mitigation? Well, my argument there is, is that methane is definitely a climate pollutant. Um, it, has, it has a high potency um, relative to carbon dioxide. And, you know, I see this from a slightly different perspective. I think about this from the fact that methane itself represents sort of lost energy right this is a form of energy that's being released by the cow um, that could be potentially retained for other purposes now that's easier said than done for a variety of reasons but when we try to think about efficiency of meat or milk production um, we really want to capture as much possible gross dietary energy to make meat and milk, and if we have an opportunity here to reduce methane, um, then then potentially we have the opportunity to you know conserve that energy for meat and milk production, which is only going to benefit um, the farmer, and it can benefit the cow as well uh, potentially. So, um, to the critics in the world, I argue that if dairy and beef production can be part of the solution and reduce methane emissions from our atmosphere. Uh, but it's simultaneously enhancing uh, sort of the success of our industries, and we should do it. Um, we absolutely should do it.
0: Joe, you've been recently uh, featured in some high-profile publications, The Hill and Time Magazine, and you were defending the dairy industry. Can you talk a little bit uh, to yeah. us about uh, what you talked about in those articles?
1: I never thought I'd be doing this if you asked me five years ago. Um, uh, Again, Cornell provided a lot of opportunities for enhanced visibility. And, you know, I think the definition of what an animal scientist is needs to evolve with time. And we have this debate in our own department when I talk to my colleagues at various stages of their career. And, uh, you know, I think we have to really advocate um, for our industry. And we have to make sure... That we do a good job being transparent about, um, you know, what works and what doesn't. Um, the industry is not perfect. And these beef and cattle industries are not perfect. No industry is. Um, but I think scientists have sort of responsibility uh, to help clear the narrative, to address misconceptions. And that's difficult to do. Um, if you ask any scientist, that, that should be difficult to do. We're trained to be scientists. Right? We, we train we're trained to communicate as scientists and but we're not really trained to communicate to the average at the grocery store. OK, we're just not we're not trained to do that. Uh, I, I have a personal interest in to in to be a, a better communicator to to all, not just scientists. I think and by doing so, I, I hope that I can address some of the misconceptions. So the, the articles and the hill and, and in time were. were there to one focus on um, this this debate regarding um, the natural carbon cycle, and that maybe we shouldn't be focused on um, uh, on dairy and beef production because of that. Um, and then the most recent ones were on seaweed: is it really the solution? Maybe we need to sort of be more transparent about what does it work potentially with seaweed feeding and enteric methane. And then the time when it was focused on what are the current barriers to really expedite um, real meaningful solutions um, for various production systems across the world. And so I really just want to put it out there um, and, and, and showcase that um, we can do better and we are doing better um, and the future looks bright.
0: Yeah, good.
2: And if I might add, um, I do think it's really important to recognize the the strides that have been made um, towards improving sustainability and efficiency in the industry already. And so this is looking at um, extending solution sets um, that are both beneficial to to farmers as well as improving the condition for the climate.
1: Yeah, thank you yeah, for that. Perry's right. I mean, in terms of the, you know, just look at Europe, look at the U.S. I mean, efficiency looks phenomenal. Look at Canada, Can OK, uh, you got your 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 beer there. Um, but how do we make those gains in efficiency, uh, gains, sustainability efforts, translate across various production systems? I think it's really important, and Perry and I are really focused heavily on uh, in South Asia, specifically India. We have several efforts, both collaborative and non-collaborative, where we're trying to think about how to um, help farmers of, at every scale of production um, be better farmers and, but, but also protect the environment at the same time.
0: Joe, so Perry, uh, uh, mentioned that we've made a lot of progress so far. Um, I'm sure there's a lot more progress to be made. What are some of the, the near term things that we've done to, to create that progress?
1: This isn't this, for all those that are probably listening to this podcast, they already realize this, but it's management, genetics and nutrition. I mean, those are the top three that really have, have really enhanced efficiency. That's great for the US, uh, it's great for Europe, um, but how do you do that um, in countries with 75 million plus smallholder farmers? Like, How do you do that? Uh, th- that is not easy to do. Um, and the only reason why we have done it is we've dramatically changed our production system. Um, and that direction of change is not going to be applicable to every country um, that is, has a developing country, countries with emerging economies, it's not going to be directly applicable. So we have to we, we can't ignore them uh, because we're trying to reduce global greenhouse gas emissions. And they're a significant contributor. Um, and we, yeah, we at that.
0: Yeah, I know. But let's talk about that. Right. You guys decided to focus on India and yeah. um, and you said there's a lot of progress to be made there. Um, yes. and, and so how'd you pick India or? Southeast Asia, well, you
1: know, this all started with the Environmental Defense Fund. They um, I blame them uh, <laughs> for changing my, my research program a bit. And I, it's a good blame. I, I really enjoy this. But Environmental Defense Fund came to Cornell. There was a, a couple of representatives that, that, that came and and they you know, just brought this to my attention. It's something that I realized I never put a lot of thought into it. But they said, hey, you know, India is going to be soon the most populous country in the world. Um, it has 75 million smallholder dairy farmers. They have over 300 million uh, cattle and buffalo. Right? Put this in perspective, we're talking about 9 million dairy cows in the United States with, I think, just under 40,000 farmers. This is a crazy difference, okay? And that India itself produces about 20, 22% of total global dairy production, right? And they're doing it using this production system. Um, it also is a, is a high producer, of of methane um in terms of 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 all the countries on the planet and certainly enteric fermentation rice production um contribute to this Um, so i thought well hey a lot of ruminants um high hairy dairy production state what can we do um and and how can we help and it's not about going over and 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 trying to you know say we're gonna do x y and z it's about going over learning from them Learning about what the industry is currently doing and and trying to work with them um, to help them to to, to just be a little bit better. And so in this process, um, I had a chance to um, travel um, to uh, Gujarat um, in Bangalore, India, with um, the team from EDF in um, late 2022. And in that process, we had a chance to meet with the National Dairy Development Board or NDDB. Um, this is a, a governing authority that has a heavy influence of, over dairy production practices across India, and they have a very well developed uh, sort of extension network where they can educate farmers at this small sort of production level. You know, every farmer is producing maybe one to five animals. It's not it's not very large, and so we're asking, what can we do? How can we contribute? Well, the National Dairy Development Board has been uh, had initiated a ration balancing program. Uh, this is a program to help um, enhance utility of ration balancing for Indian dairy farmers. And so I said, like, okay, maybe we can help here. Uh, we have obviously the home of the CNCPS, Carb- Cornell Net Carbohydrate and Protein System. And, and what, how could we contribute? And so with, working with Perry. we've developed a sort of a, I think a concrete plan moving forward here to one better understand feed chemistry throughout India. Uh, this sounds, it's a, it's a difficult challenge. Um, it's got a lot of states, a lot of terrain to cover. Um, But we're going to work systematically or starting uh, with a pilot study in Gujarat um, to really go out, talk to a couple hundred smallholder farmers, um, learn about the feeds that they're feeding, collect feed samples, work with a commercial lab to fully define the the, the nutrient profile uh, using contemporary approaches, and then integrate that within our sort of um, CNCPS nutrition model with the help of my colleague and mentor, Dr. Mike Van Amberg. And, you know, in the process, once we have that information, we'll go out and work with that village. And we're actually going to do an actual study where we're going to look at the status quo versus follow the feeding recommendation we provide based on that feed chemistry data that we have. And we're going to do an eight-week intervention and we're going to see what happens. And you know what? We realize that adherence is not going to be great, but in this process, we're going to learn about what works and what doesn't in terms of adherence. We want to be able to identify those barriers and so we can close them.
0: So I've been to India as well, right? And and I've seen those small farms and to me they look just desperately inefficient. So if you really to me it seems like if you really want to make an impact, we need to move away from those small farms and maybe I'm just a little bit North America centric, but to move to larger, more efficient, more productive animals, and that's the real way to make um progress
1: I no it's God, got to disagree with you here big time because uh, yep. you i had the same mentality when i went over there right i mean before i went over there i had the same mentality like that that is an american mentality if i had to say that's probably what we think um and but when you go over there you see how important producing milk is for each individual farmer to them this is their way of life it's every night they go they they drop off the milk they get paid for it a yeah. significant portion of their income. You have got 75 million people in this country, in that country, in India, producing dairy. It's that's that's a way of life, uh, and yeah. so I think enhancing the efficiency at a smallholder production setting ensures that you know their net daily income goes up. You know they're they're going to have better nutrition. Um, obviously, we all know milk's a nutrient dense food, um, and I think they're going to be better off for that. Uh, and when you talk to those folks, you talk to the folks at NDDB. National Dairy Development Board, or we talk to the farmers, uh, you know, this is their way of life. It's not going to change. It is unreasonable for us <laughs> to sort of say, hey, let's go reduce the ruminant population. It's not going to happen. Right? right. So I'll leave it at that.
0: No, I get it.
2: Yeah. I, I have to it. echo what Joe said. Um, cattle are a, a way of life and they are a source of food security, nutritional security, and Um, deeply um, connected to their livelihoods. And so certainly the goal is not to change what they're doing, but to contribute in whatever we can to help them optimize the productivity of their cattle through animal nutrition, animal health and breeding strategies. Um, And a lot of that work is being done on the ground there. And the goal is to see what we can add to that conversation.
0: Yeah, I completely understand and appreciate that. I I, I learned when I was over there, you know, one of the first foods that infants are given Uh, after birth is, is cow's milk. And, you know, it really is part of their culture and and part of who they are. So no, I, I applaud you guys for your work there.
1: It's very much advancing. So I, I thought, Hey, that there's very little information about the production system over there, but they're attempting to register every single sort of farm system. So every animal can be identified you know, on a database. I've seen a database uh, that a mole had, which is one of their major milk unions over there. And they pull up an individual farmer. They know when the animal was last bred. And they know what the milk component test was, which gets evaluated every evening at the collection center. So data integration is is there. I see it happening um, and it's only going to get better. Um, there's also cool stuff on sort of using um, sort of biogas sort of collection sort of on farm, and so they can <clears throat> use that as a fuel um, for as a uh, cooking fuel, but also use the slurry to create fertilizers. So they're using innovative sort of practices like that to give the farmer extra income. So I can't wait to see what happens.
0: Yeah. You know, I want to change directions on you guys just a little bit. You know, I I consider Cornell being on the cutting edge of understanding uh, methane emissions from dairy cattle. You've been putting in some new facilities there and and I wanted to give you guys an opportunity to talk about that. Exactly what are you putting in Mm -hmm. uh, and and, and what will you be doing with it?
1: Well, there's so much going on. I mean, I'm not just trying to hype everybody up about this, but I'm just rather state the facts. Uh, a couple of years ago, I had a chance to acquire um, support for respiration chambers, so that really kicked it off. And so we actually just, I think, picked the contractor at a meeting on Friday to to talk about the contractor we picked, and that construction is supposed to start next month and conclude by October. There's four respiration chambers, completely climate controlled, feed and water intake in real time. We can go from 30 degrees Fahrenheit to 105 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, highly programmable. We can measure. All the gases we want to be concerned about: CO2, hydrogen, methane, ammonia, nitrous oxide, um, and also oxygen consumption. And so we think this is a real pivotal tool for us to really think about the next, um, you know, evolution. Sorry, of the next version of CNCP's nutrition model, but also allow us to, to position us well to test the next solutions that reduce enteric methane. In addition, um, that momentum led to the, you know, acquiring various green feed units um, for our farm we continue to grow that number we're currently at three uh, we anticipate uh, acquiring more here in the near future also expanding our ability to do um, individual intake measurements uh, we're currently right around 120 cows that we can measure individual intake on I anticipate um, getting that up to around um, 160 to 180 uh, cows for uh, the number of uh, pr- production trials that we have planned we're going to need it uh, but most importantly, which I was I was stunned, yesterday I found out about this. The um, Cornell College of Agriculture and Life Sciences had this proposal submission request uh, called Moonshots. And in there, faculty could propose faculty uh, positions uh, for their department. I uh, think there, there was 20, 29 proposals. Uh, my proposal was one of I think eight that was approved. Uh, and it focuses on um, greenhouse gas emissions and reducing them from livestock production. And there was three specific uh, faculty positions that we will now recruit for Uh, the one is a rumen microbiology uh, sort of position um, focused in part on enteric methane so we really need a microbiologist here uh, at Cornell Uh, we we don't have one to be honest with you we don't have one right now that's a true microbiologist and as we start to study these various feed additives in greater depth we really want to be able to uh, understand their modes of action Um, Number two position is somebody focused in in the global development arena. So we really want somebody focused on developing countries uh, that can enhance sustainable livestock production in those countries um, and identify the challenges and solutions. And so, yeah, we're we're taking this to heart. I mean, we're focused on India, but now we have somebody else coming on board that's going to focus on a different country. We're taking this serious. And number three, somebody that's going to be in our Dyson school and CALS, um focused on, on dairy economics and so really focus on the carbon credit system uh which will be a, a later hire. but those three positions are coming on board which is pretty exciting for us
0: yeah are those units Joe are they operating now
1: in terms of the chambers yeah Now I just said the construction of those units are going to uh, conclude in October and, and October. um we hope to be operational by the end of the year
0: All right. You mentioned a little bit about funding Uh, initially. Can you talk about uh, uh, the funding and maybe give you an opportunity to get a little commercial for asking folks for a few more
1: dollars? (laughs) Well, I I think we want to be strategic about how we use the support. And so as as that as we identify demands, we really want to identify strategic partners um, for that support. But, you know, we've acquired close to about two million dollars in support. I think just over that right now. Um, from New York State, um, Genesee Valley Regional Market Authority, from our own college, uh, from uh, Cargill and uh, Ballcam Corporation has also been a sponsor, a gracious sponsor. And um, we, you know how that will evolve in the future, time will tell. But um, yeah, the, the funding doesn't go wasted. You know, unfortunately, when you go renovate a facility, do a lot of demolition, rip up concrete, and put install an HVAC, it's not cheap. <laughs> but we found a path forward. Uh, To pull it off.
0: Yeah, very well. Uh, I'd like to transition a little bit to talking about uh, some of the items that you talked about in the webinar. Um, Of all the challenges that you described in the webinar, what do you see as the number one priority uh, right now and and how do we address it?
1: Yeah, so uh, it's hard for scientists sometimes to say just one thing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But But, you know, feeding duration is really important when you talk about feed additives that reduce methane. You know, I'm guilty of this myself. We just we just ran we just did our first sort of um, green feed study using the green feed technology, and um, you know it's a short feeding trial, three weeks. Uh, but I think for some of these feed adders, we we've got to um, expand beyond uh, three months in terms of feeding duration, and that's a little difficult to do. One, you need a lot of animals to per treatment to pull that off. It needs to be in a controlled setting. Um, and, but there's a lot of, I think, interest to understand, um, a lot of questions that relate to duration. So for example, um, how does as efficacy change with time? How does efficacy change with, um, you know, energy balance of the animal? How does it change with sort of, um, diet in the animal? As you talk about an animal that goes from gestation to lactation, it's different diets. How does that influence, influence efficacy? What happens when you decide to change an ingredient in a diet? You know, what happens when you, um, you know, if you lose efficacy after a couple of weeks or months, what? how can you restore it or maintain that reduction with alternative additives? So looking at co-supplementation and replacement strategies are really needed. So long duration feeding trials are needed. Um, absolutely needed. They're not easy to do. Grad students don't like them, uh, but they, they got to be done.
0: When do you say long? How long? Are the full lactation? So,
1: we're talking on the short end, three months. Uh, short end um, I think, but yeah, full lactation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, we also need to think about full lifespan of an animal, right? And so there's a lot of interest to look at things that go on early on in life and sort of, so you can do something for a couple of weeks and has long-term benefit. I mean, I think there's a lot of research that needs to go on there that just hasn't been talked about, uh, or just evaluated. Um, and then, but also the other production systems, right? We're so focused on confined dairy, um, management styles. That's, it's easy to do, give consistent delivery of the additive, but we've got to think about alternatives for different systems.
2: Yeah. And if I might add, um, I completely agree about uh, the challenges with different systems. And I think also at the root of this is um, the challenge with measurement and making sure we have a, a standardized way of, of evaluating these products and, and figuring out what their actual efficace, efficacy is. Yeah. Certainly, um, the the impacts for safety and health are important too. and and that um, speaks to the Joe's comment about um, long-duration studies and lifespan studies. Um, but I think both aspects um, are really important.
0: Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about those yeah. standards and, and, and yeah. measurements? Well, how are we, we going to do that?
1: Well, so this is one of our projects with the um, Environmental Defense Fund um, is to explore this exact question. Ananda Fantura, a previous PhD student and postdoc that's leading this, this effort. You know, she's currently looking at how various tools that measure methane emissions are validated That's sort of one component of this process. And I'll give you an example. Um, so there's the green feed technology, which we're using it. Um, um, there's things that we need to study a little bit in greater depth to, to refine the technology, I believe. But it has a lot of great applicability and accessibility, and, and there's a lot of science behind it already. But how do you validate a tool like that? Or we're in India. They're talking about using lasers, a calcite lasers, to monitor emissions. How do you validate that? Well, a lot of the, the, the science papers that we read, and Ananda's has brought to my attention, is that you know they'll do this. They'll do a validation study where they'll they'll use a, uh, a methane monitoring tool, and they'll they'll look at the how much methane was produced from that animal in a given day, right? In that particular production setting. And then they'll compare that to methane emissions that are being estimated by calculations derived from completely independent chamber trials. All right. And so to say, oh, they're equivalent. Um, but the reality was the environment was different. The diet was different. The animals were different. And so we really wanted to advocate for validating sort of technologies that monitor methane emissions within an individual study. Um, there's going to be more on this coming out in the future from, from Ananda, but um, that, that's, that's a high priority for us. Um, in terms of, um, yeah, the, the health component, we, we focus so much on percent reduction, right? Oh, 30% reduction, 50%, whatever it is, whatever the number is, that's only one component here. We cannot solve one problem and create another problem, right? And so we can't get too far ahead of ourselves. And so there are technologies that are being discussed that have some concerns regarding sort of their long-term efficacy or their safety. And we've got to be extremely transparent with the consumer about what works and what doesn't, because we can't be in a position 10 years from now where we haven't made any progress because the consumer decided, hey, I don't want that. Nope, because cows were fed that. Right. And so that's part of the process, too, in this is to really identify streamline sort of experimental approach that covers the the holistic um, sort of uh, perspective.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, was, Successful implementation of feed additives yeah. as a strategy for enteric methane mitigation will absolutely require products that are effective, but they also have to um, not cause negative environmental trade-offs, be safe for humans and animals, uh, be widely adopted by the industry, as Joe said, and certainly be accepted by consumers. So all of those boxes have to be checked for us to, to make an effective strategy.
0: Yes. Yeah, so Perry, just to make sure I've got my mind around this. So right now you guys are working on validating measurement methodology. Now, is this primarily for studies or is this in preparation for measuring methane emissions at the dairy level? Mm-hmm. Um, can you expound on that just a bit?
1: No, I mean, we're, we're very much focused um, from from an academic research perspective, um, because I, I think there's a lot of discussion about commercial field trials um and what role do they play in this and i see it i see it firsthand where i have zoom meetings with various companies and they tell me hey we're working on this new technology and um or something that we were we're talking about already and we're testing it out these commercial labs and it's like why why are you jumping to the commercial field trial for it and um i have some concerns but there's some benefits there that we can't ignore so for example Commercial field trial provides you a lot of animals for treatment. Uh, I think that's really powerful. Um, It also allows you to look at the health, the disease incidence, right? The fertility, um, you know, variables that need to be considered. I know very few universities that can can do that very well. Uh, We just don't have the animal numbers. Maybe that one they're building in Idaho can do it, but I don't think that thing's built yet. But, um, you know, we're not in the position at Cornell to do that effectively. Uh, And so I also think there you have to, have farmers buy into technology like they have to believe it they have to trust it and one farmer telling another farmer hey it worked for me i think goes a long way sometimes and so doing testing on uh commercial farms really adds to that and really helps support um its adoption and so i think there's a role there so yeah from our perspective we're really focused on how do you do this in in a university trial we're not thinking too hard about the commercial field aspect of this um, some would argue in that exercise where I went out and talked to um, virtually the various scientists, some would argue we shouldn't even bother measuring methane emissions as a way to define efficacy in a commercial setting. Uh, there's just too many variables in play. right? The diets are constantly changing. You can't keep the same number of animals per pen, or whatever. Uh, there's a variety of um, potential issues. Uh, but just really focus on you know, the, the, the milk production, the fertility and disease, and, and maybe that's where the value is.
0: Yeah. But at some point we are going to have to measure the dairy, right? If we're giving out the uh, carbon credits and we're going to have
1: to. So how do you do that? Right. And so we have cool farm, Tool, cool farm tools. something we just had a graduate student present and talk about the way to try to estimate um, some of the, some of the emissions. Uh, I have, I've had people, <clears throat> well, we're talking about technologies that can be done, you know, at the, the parlor level, at the cow level, sort of monitor emissions. I mean, this is a, this is, you know, it's a bit of the wild west right now in terms of um, the technologies that are emerging to do this and do it correctly. You know, I wanna take a moment here to also say that our pro-dairy team um, just also received funding as part of our of our growing prog- program here to look at emissions off the manure, right? And so that's also a big concern for a lot of farmers too, to, to know, you know how are methane emissions changing um, or perhaps nitrous oxide emissions um off of manure and so we're going to have the testing capacity now in the next couple months to be able to take manure and look at the emissions off of that so that's a new development as well
0: yeah good guys i gotta apologize right uh i'm having a ball with this i'm enjoying this conversation with joe but i want to make sure i bring you guys in uh perry ken any anything you'd like to ask or or uh, contribute to to the conversation
3: it's always so great to hear uh joe and his excitement about this topic i've been listening to some of this for a while now so it's i'm always learning i think i'm i'm a little curious as you look at say the application of additives into a developing market like india will will there be a place can they afford them how will that get funded for them there's a,
1: a lot of questions around application Oh, no absolutely I and mean, that's why we're we've already had that independent thinking about is you know, an additive approach should that be our priority number one in countries like india and the answer has been no it shouldn't it, it can't be uh, it, it can't be ignored and there are some good work that's being done by a variety of research groups across india looking at dietary feed additives um, the, the additives that i've seen have been more plant extracts you know tannins um as solutions that are going to be cheap and affordable um in terms of their um application at the smallholder level i think there's possibility i mean those farmers from what i could see and granted i'm i'm hopefully will become an expert uh, I'm just just learning but from my my observations is that farmers can obtain pelleted feed at the collection centers and so maybe there's an opportunity there to integrate sort of additives in that um, particular um, pellet uh, to ensure consistent delivery um, but the efficacy for those products those additives that they're looking at are quite low uh, I would argue they're probably in that five to ten percent range closely evaluated in the science, but I can't imagine this could be more than five or 10% efficacy in terms of methane reduction. Um, and so that's why we made a conscious decision here um, to partner with EDF to focus on efficiency, uh, because I think our our biggest gains can be made there most rapidly. And we focus more on feed additives in the developed countries um, like the U S and we do that together. Hopefully we'll be in a better place 10 years from now.
3: So sure. So that quickly leads me, and Perry, this might be for you, because the um, regulatory environment for approving these additives globally seems to be highly variable. And the US perhaps may be being one of the more restricted marketplaces for approval and um, the oversight from the FDA. Can you comment on where that's going to take us and what that looks like?
2: Absolutely, yes. I think that's a great point. We really need um, space for innovation um, in this field and a a faster pathway to market. Um, So it is important to identify an expedited regulatory process going forward. Currently, all products with environmental claims, including enteric methane inhibition, are reviewed under the NADA, or New Animal Drug Application Process. And it certainly is a long and resource-intensive process, which is important, it's an essential um, pathway, but um, we, we need a faster pathway to market. This is an urgent crisis and a need. Um, that being said, any pathway still has to maintain safeguards for animal health, human health, and the environment generally. Um, CVM has demonstrated their commitment to reevaluating the current regulatory pathway for these products. So um, we are eager to hear what comes out of that work. Um, that those efforts have been um, seen in other regions um Canada has a new approach to to these products um, and Europe has a, a different approach but you're right it does look different by region and currently the process in um, the us is quite long and so we're we're hopeful for um, what comes out of those those efforts
3: so as you think about the two broad categories and then I'll leave this uh, subject alone but the category of inhibitors of the methanogenesis pathway so 3 knot maybe being the most understood example um, versus rumen modifiers so all the other things joe mentioned a few minutes ago will there yeah. be a different regulatory environment for those different categories is that how you see that unfolding
2: there are several different approaches that CVM could take to reenvisioning the regulatory process for these products. Um, they could open up an existing pathway like the food additive petition um, process. They could um, create a, a new category like what you're describing, a gut modifier category um, or zootechnical category, um, more consistent with other regions. Or they could um, remain in the NADA pathway, but perhaps limit the um, effectiveness requirements in order to get approval. Um, so there are several different ways that they could um, navigate the system in order to provide an expedited pathway
0: great thank you scott so joe you've got a hard stop here in about three minutes um, and i'm out of bourbon so i think with that we'll call let call you are as well <laughs> very well we, we may, that's been a ball, so we may have to do this again, because uh, I've got a lot more questions for you guys. But, you know, in, in terms of the last call, and we'll go around and talk to all three of you guys, but what are some things that you'd like to leave with the audience with respect to mitigating methane emissions in the future?
4: Tonight's last call question is brought to you by NitroSure precision-release nitrogen. NitroSure delivers a complete TMR for the rumen microbiome, helping you feed the microbes that feed your cows. To learn more about maximizing microbial protein output while reducing your carbon footprint, visit balcomcom slash nitroSure.
0: So Ken, let's start with you. No,
3: I think uh, what's come to light, you know, uh, is the imperative nature of this conversation it's changed a lot in the last three to four years and it's accelerating and i think for where i'm sitting looking at the industry and the need to make some of these adjustments it it's never been higher so the chances of of us making some real inroads seems to be also accelerating as we put focus here so from that standpoint, I, I think I my hat's off to Cornell for the effort Joe's leading and trying to establish some uh, technology standards that we'll
0: have to look for. Yeah, well said, Ken. Uh, Perry, what do you have for us?
2: Yes, I completely agree about the urgency of the work. Um, and a lot of this conversation touched on how it, it can take many different forms um, certainly optimizing productivity is a major area. It increases food security and improves livelihoods while having that co-benefit of reducing methane emission intensities. So I think that's really important in a lot of regions. When we're talking about the US and um other similar systems, certainly innovation in this space and the ability to understand the systems and, and measurement are really integral to to making progress. Yeah,
0: excellent. Joe, we'll give you the final word.
1: Okay. Well, I have two comments. Uh, one comment is something I didn't talk too much about, but we sort of overly generalize percent efficacy. We always like to say X percent, but we have to understand that it's likely highly influential by diet, uh, by stage of development, you know, breed of the animal. We have to. We don't really understand enough, and so we have to be careful not to overgeneralize. We have to be very transparent about what works and what doesn't with the consumer. That's number two. And number three, I have a call for all people in the sort of the feed manufacturing feed additive sort of business. Let's start to think about um, developing countries. The global research Alliance did a survey, nearly all of them. It was like 80% focus their efforts on the developed world and not the developing world and the efficiency gaps only going to get worse. Uh, And so we have to encourage, companies to sort of think a little bit, hey, how can I you know, expand my market to those countries? And, and, and hopefully I see that opportunity emerge. Um, thank you. This has been a blast, um, as always.
0: No, yeah, no, it has been a blast. I, I've had a, a lot of fun. And so I want to thank you, Joe and Perry, for joining us. You guys have been great guests. I also want to thank you for you know the contributions you have made and, and will make uh, toward this uh, very timely uh, effort. Uh, Ken. You're always a great co-host. Thank you for joining me here this evening. And uh, to our loyal listeners, I want to thank you for coming along for 65 episodes so far and sticking with us for even more to come. Uh, We hope you had fun tonight. We hope you learned something. And we hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange, where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends.
4: We'd love to hear your comments or ideas for topics and guests. So please reach out via email to anh.marketing at with any suggestions and we'll work hard to add them to the schedule. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating on your way out. You can request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt in just a few easy steps. Just like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address and t-shirt size to anh.marketing at Balchem's Real Science lecture series of webinars continues with ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month, monogastric-focused topics on the second Tuesday of each month, and quarterly topics for the companion animal segment. Visit balchem.com slash real science to see the latest schedule and to register for upcoming webinars.